Have you ever had the experience where someone was being nice to you because they wanted something from you? <laughs> right? Right? Um, a few weeks back, um, I found myself in the situation where I was looking at buying a, uh, a used vehicle, our family car, our van had kind of uh, run its course and needed some attention, and so we made the decision that we were going to purchase a, a new vehicle and uh, let the van that was dying kind of go be somebody else's problem. And so I, I did the thing uh, where you kind of reach out to the dealership ahead of time, let them know that you're coming to look at the vehicle. And so the, uh, the salesman was, was very excited that I was coming, and he called twice to confirm that I was going to be there, and they were going to have the, the vehicle all cleaned up and ready for me and all that. And, and so I get there, and, and I could tell from the very beginning that this guy wanted me to think that he was my best friend. And so I had my, my Chicago Cubs hat on because I'm a big Cubs fan. And so he started by talking about baseball, although then he quickly let me know that he preferred hockey and then just started talking about hockey. But then he realized that he was off on his tangent. And so then he circled back to baseball. And we kind of compromised by talking about the Tigers um, because it's still kind of baseball. And so then we're just kind of chatting. And again, he's, he's trying to be my best friend. And I know he just wants to sell me this truck. And... Uh, so we're filling out some of the paperwork, and he asked me what I, what I do for a living. And this is always my, one of my favorite questions to answer. Uh, I used to dread it because it would always change the dynamic of the conversation. Now I enjoy it because it changes the dynamic of the conversation. <clears throat> and so this guy who had been, you know, talking about sports and using some colorful language along the way, uh, hears me say, oh, I'm a pastor, and... Uh, you see like that process for a minute, like it takes a second and like resets the conversation. And again, still wanting to be my best friend type of guy, like he starts talking about his upbringing and his faith, which I, anyways, it was an interesting conversation to say the least. Um, and then he just starts asking me questions and, but I could tell just like he wanted to be my best friend, but he wanted to be my best friend because he wanted me to buy this vehicle. And in fact, when I went and test drove it, I came back. He had bought me lunch, so I came back from the test drive, and there was a plate of barbecue ribs and, like, steak fries and some coleslaw. Um, he just, their office was ordering, and he just included me in their, their, their lunch order. So I, like, he was trying hard to sell this truck, and, um, but again, I knew, he, like, he's never going to call me again. Like, <laughs> we're not going to go hang out, right? Uh, he wanted to sell me a truck, and I bought a truck, and so transaction done. Um, maybe if you are our parents, you've had something similar to this. You know when your kids want something from you? Have you ever had that? They're, they're being nice to you because they're up to something. Oftentimes they're being too nice so you know something's up. Right? Like, what do you want? You know? Oh, I just love you. And also, can I get cookies or whatever, cake or ice cream or whatever. Um, or maybe if that's not been your experience, you've had the experience where a coworker or maybe even a supervisor has kind of tried to flatter you a little bit, butter you up, tell you how great of a job you're doing before they dump a bunch of more work in your lap or reassign you to something else. You know, can I just tell you how great you're doing at this? By the way, here's, you know, you're not going to see a weekend for the next three years. Um, that type of thing, right? Like we've all experienced at some level or another, we know people have engaged us and been nice to us or wanted to be our best friend because their true motivation was to get something from us. Um, 
In our scripture today, Jesus is going to talk about those types of relationships, but he talks to his disciples about his friendship with them in terms that was radically different than the way that the examples I've shared. And so if you have your Bibles or want to follow along on the screen, we're going to be in John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. Um, and again, we've been part of this sermon series that has, has been looking at the relationship that Jesus created with his disciples, the relationship that he has with his followers, um, the dynamic between his love for his followers, his followers' sense of identity and belonging um, to Jesus. And so John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of God for the people of God. We respond with thanks be to God. Pray with me if you will. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for these words of Jesus where he calls his followers friends, not servants. Help us today and every day from now on to grab a hold of this powerful message, this great relationship, this true uh, profound and deep truth that we can be friends with Jesus. Bless this time in your son's name we pray. Amen. So in this season after Easter, um, we find ourselves, we talk a lot about God's love, about the relationships that we have in Christ with Jesus, with God, with each other. That's what this whole sermon series has been about. Um, Churches that follow the church calendar will also have been talking about God's love a lot. So if you check out other churches, not I'm telling you to check out other churches, but if you're listening to other church sermons, you know, everything's on Facebook or podcasts and stuff now, you'll probably hear other sermons about love. Um, I know it's come up in Sunday school. Um, it's just the season after Easter, the church kind of jumps in with both feet into this relationship that we have with God. There's just a lot of sermons about the love of Christ. And Jesus tells his disciples, he tells his followers that he has loved them and to remain and abide in this love. And then he says that in order to remain in his love, his followers must keep his commands. And for a long time, I wrestled with this because it sounded uh, a little bit manipulative. Um, You know, kind of like the whole... Uh, car dealership example I had or something like that, but like if we're friends, if, if you love me you're going to do what I want you to do 
like, we'll have this loving relationship, but it's, it's mostly transactional because I get something out of it. If you love me, you do what I tell you to do. And that just sounded wrong to me in my ears. It just came across as, like I said, manipulative or a little bit uh, heavy-handed. And even when Jesus first states that he loves them, it still, still felt uh, strange. Where he says, I love you, and if you love me, do what I tell you to do. Verse 15 gets even more blunt. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you to do. I, I don't know about you, but when I was seven or eight years old, I had a friend like that. <laughs> We're best friends, but if we don't play the game that I want to play, I'm going home. <laughs> You're my best friend if you let me win. You'll be my best friend if you can share your new toy with me. Like, it was just a bad friendship. Um, and that's what, I've always heard Jesus' words through that lens, through that filter. You're my friends if you do what I command. Like, that's kind of a pretty crummy friendship, right? If you're my friend, you'll let me play with your toy, you'll let me win, all that stuff. And, and so this might appear at the surface to be a really toxic type of friendship, type of relationship between Jesus and his followers. And there are those who are critical of religion or critical of Christianity who would point to this exact story and say, look, this is Jesus trying to control, trying to manipulate, like this is authoritarian, this is heavy-handed, this is even abusive, this is coercion at its, at its finest. But that's not what's happening here. In fact, what Jesus is saying and describing in this passage is, is an amazing invitation it's, it's an open door that's, that we're going we're gonna to explore this morning. It's, it's, it's this amazing invitation, and it's not a means of controlling groups of people. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus is not manipulating his followers, but rather he is inviting them to, an experience, uh, to experience the love that he has for them, the same love that the Father and Jesus share. And so, in the past, I've, I've heard this and, and, and think of it as Jesus saying, oh, oh, if you're thirsty and you do what I want you to do, then I'll give you some water, right? It's kind of a reward or you do what I want you to do, then, then I'll, I'll give you this bonus, right? If you do what I want you to do, then I'll give you what you need or what you want. But in reality, what Jesus is saying here. It's not, if you do what I want, then I'll give you this drink of water. But he's saying, if you do what I want, this is how you get the water. The commands that I'm giving you isn't, isn't a condition for you to have what you need, but it's actually the way to have what you need. And so it's not that God will reward you with love if you do these legalistic things that he's calling you to do, but rather this is the way. The previous scripture in John 15, like if you just went up on the page a little bit, um, we would hear the scripture that Tabitha shared with us last week about Jesus describing himself as the vine and his followers as the branches. He's talking about relationship. He's talking about connection here in John chapter 15. And then he says, remain in my life and abide in my love. So all of this is, is Jesus telling his disciples that they can be connected to him. They can be connected to him in the same way that he is connected to the Father. 
And this is, is no small statement. You know, like I said, for the past several weeks since Easter, we've been in this Belong, Believe, Beloved series where we've looked at the relationship that we as Jesus' followers can have with him. But this is by far the most profound statement in this whole series. Followers of Jesus can be connected to Jesus in the same type of relationship that Jesus has with the Father. That's profound. And this connection built upon love, there, there is joy, Jesus says. Your joy will be complete. I will have joy in this relationship. Jesus has joy and his followers experience joy. And, and so I'm sitting here reading this thinking, we can have the same type of relationship with Jesus that Jesus has with the Father. Wouldn't you like to have that type of relationship with Jesus? It's incredible to think that that's even possible. The intimate, powerful uh, relationship Jesus has with God the Father, we can have with Jesus. And so Jesus says that his followers can have this relationship if, he, if they do what he tells them to do. If, he, if they do the commands that he gives them. And so it's important at this point to ask the question, what is he teaching them that they need to do? To remain in his love. What, what, is the, what are these commands? What is this command that his followers must obey in order to experience this amazing relationship? What, what is this command? And Jesus just clearly states it. He says, love each other as he has loved them. The relationship with each other is not to be one of servant and masters, but a relationship based on loving friendship. Why is he, he creating this dynamic? Why is this his command? It's because that the relationship that Jesus created with them, like that's the way that he set their relationship up, this loving friendship. And, and this is how Jesus loved and cared for people, and this is how he gathered community together around him. It wasn't through a master-servant type of thing. It was through a loving friendship. And so he invites and commands his followers to engage in that type of relationship with each other. And Jesus knows at this point in John chapter 15 that he's going away sooner than later. That he's not always going to be physically present with them. And so even though he's going away, his followers can continue to experience the loving and life-giving relationship with Jesus through their participation in a loving and life-giving community of faith. They can experience that loving friendship with Jesus as they experience that loving friendship with each other. This is the theme that I want you to walk away with today. If you don't remember anything else other than that the car salesman bought me a barbecue lunch, um, remember this. Because of Jesus' love for us, he invites us into his life where he teaches us to love one another as we live in the community of faith. Now that's a mouthful. Um, but I'm going to say it again. Because of Jesus' love for us. Because he loves us. He invites us into his life. As we're gathered into his life. He teaches us to love one another. As we live in community. With other people of faith. And I believe. And this isn't just a casual belief. But this is a deeply founded belief for me, a philosophy of Christianity, if you will, 
that Christians living in community shaped by these teachings of Jesus is the most faithful response to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That, that a, a church gathered around the love of Christ, gathered by the love of Christ, is the most faithful response to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So throughout history, throughout church history, Christian history, world history, there's been many ways of responding to the gospel of Jesus. But here we have Jesus clearly stating one command on how we should respond to that gospel. Love one another. Now it's true, some uh, people might hear the gospel of Jesus and want to study it more, and that's a good response. Some might hear the gospel and want to teach others information about Jesus. That's a good response. Some might hear the gospel and wrestle with accepting the truth of the gospel. Uh, An absurd claim that uh, a poor insignificant child from a poor insignificant village that existed in the crossroads between powerful empires, that, that that child is the king of God's kingdom and he's been given all of God's authority and now we're supposed to pledge our allegiance and our trust to this, this Jesus. Like, that's a big claim. And so when we hear that gospel, we might wrestle with the truth and the impact of that statement. And that's a good thing. There are some that might hear the gospel and deny its power and truth. That's not quite as good of a thing. But it is a response. People hear the gospel and say, that doesn't seem possible. That doesn't seem real. Some people might hear the gospel and want to understand how it works, how Jesus' death equates to forgiveness of sins, how the resurrection has anything to do with our lives today. So some people might hear the gospel and respond by questioning how it, the effectiveness of it. Some might hear the gospel and want to dive deep into systematic theologies and church doctrines and church history and traditions and the writing of the church fathers. And, and for some, that's their response to the gospel. Some might hear the gospel and, and like the story, but resist the invitation to lay down our allegiances and, and the hope that we put in other kingdoms so that we put our full allegiance and trust in Jesus alone. And so there's all these different responses to the, the gospel, the, the story of Jesus. There's a lot of different ways we can react and respond. Some of them are good and some of them aren't. But the one specific command that Jesus gives us as his followers, the one specific response to the gospel that he wants for each and every one of us is to love one another. You can study the scriptures, you can dive into church history, you can study systematic theologies and not be part of a loving, Christ-shaped friendship, faith community and not be doing what Jesus would want you to do. It's this command to love one another as he loves us. And so, if we want to experience the love of Jesus Christ, we must be faithful and obedient to his teaching, his command to love each other. I think I have a slide that says that, um, just because, maybe not, I don't know. There it is. If we want to experience the love of Jesus Christ, if, if this is, uh, sounds good to you, if you want to receive this relationship with Jesus, then according to what Jesus says here, we must be faithful and obedient. Do what he commands us to do, which is to love each other. 
We must belong to a community gathered in Christ's name. We must believe in the teachings and the ways of Jesus. And we must be loved, right? The belong, believe, be loved. Receive the love of Jesus as you receive the love from Jesus' followers. One of the conversations that come up from time to time as a pastor is the question of, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? Or how often do I have to go to church to be a Christian? Or what is the minimum or the maximum or whatever? Um, Can I still be a Christian and not go to church? But Jesus makes this connection in, in the scripture that it is our belonging to a community of believers who love us that allows us to remain and abide in his love. It is our connection with other believers in Christ that allow us to experience a relationship with him That is the same relationship that he has with the Father. Jesus says, remain in my love by keeping my commands. And my command is to love one another. Love one another, he says, but why? In a world that is is filled with reasons and excuses not to love each other, Paul was talking in Sunday school this morning about how we have a tendency to divide ourselves into groups or let the world divide ourselves into groups and we can point fingers and put blame and and there's lots of reasons not to love each other, but the question is, why should we? Well, the first reason why we should is because Jesus said to. If he is our Lord, if he is our King, we Submit to his teachings and do what he says. So that's baseline, foundational Christianity, right? You can't say um, no to Jesus and call him your Lord. So he says to do it. The temptation is for us to see Jesus as our Savior, as our, the one that takes care of our sin problem, the one that gets us into heaven when we die, without seeing Jesus as our King or as our Lord who clearly teaches us how we should live. The temptation is for us to have a transaction or a change in status without having a relationship or a transformation of our heart. And so the main reason, the first reason why we should love each other is because Jesus said to. But another reason why we should love one another is because those who receive love should give love. The Bible makes it clear that those who receive grace should give grace. Those who receive forgiveness should give forgiveness. Those who receive mercy should be merciful. Because Jesus loves us, we have an obligation to love others. But as Christians, and especially as holiness people, the Church of the Nazarene is a holiness tradition. It's not only an obligation to love others, but we are transformed by the love we receive. We are transformed by this gracious, loving relationship with Christ. We are transformed into people who love the way that Jesus loves. It becomes more than our choice. It becomes more than a decision. It becomes our character. It becomes our nature. This is one of uh, many reasons why I love the Church of the Nazarene is our emphasis on sanctification. It's not just people making decisions, but it's God's love actually transforming us. 
And so we love each other because Jesus says to, but we love each other because we have received God's love and that changes everything, including our hearts. But thirdly, we should love each other because loving others in a community of believers is how Jesus is making all things new. It's how Jesus is redeeming and reconciling the world through our relationships and through the relationships of countless local churches across the globe. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is bringing all nations, all people, all of creation under his authority. But he's not doing it by having the biggest army or having the most powerful weapons. He's not doing that by manipulation or by threat or by violence. Jesus is redeeming the world. He's reconciling everyone unto himself by gathering the world into a community of believers through his love. Throughout Christian history, but it seems like especially now, people sometimes react to messages on Jesus being a loving Savior um, and kind of push back against it a little bit. Yes, Jesus loves everyone, but we can't worship a Savior who's too soft, too gentle, who's all lovey-dovey, meek and mild, and just lets anything go. Right? So whenever there's a conversation emphasizing the love of Jesus, there's usually another conversation that follows it up that says, but he can't be that loving. And I wrestle with that because I, when I look at the cross, I don't see a moderated love. <laughs> That doesn't look to be the middle of the road. That seems to be an all-in kind of love that Jesus models for us in the cross. And I think that the, the, the challenge um, for those who push back and say we can't worship a Savior who is too gentle or too loving, um, the problem is that they, we've replaced Jesus the shepherd and Jesus the lamb of God with Jesus the warrior or Jesus the general or Jesus the cowboy or my personal favorite, Rambo Jesus. And it's my belief that those who push back, and I've had these, these instincts inside myself, so I'm speaking from my own experience and not just a criticism of others. Um, it's my belief that when we object to the teachings of love as the primary relationship that Jesus has with his followers and has with the world, that that pushback, that resistance comes from a lack of understanding of Christian love. Jesus wasn't a young kid's falling in love for the first time kind of love. That's not what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about butterflies in your stomach or a warm, fuzzy feeling that you get whenever somebody talks to you or looks in your general direction. The love of Jesus isn't a feeling we have about others. Christian love, as embodied, as demonstrated by Jesus, is action. Christian love is a posture towards other people. Christian love is commitment. In verse 13 that we read a few moments ago, Jesus says that greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This isn't the warm, fuzzy kind of, a, you know, like I said, butterflies in your stomach because somebody talked to you type of thing. This isn't the warm squishies, you know, when you see a friend or a family member or a loved one that you haven't seen in a while. Christian love is distinctly Christian. <laughs> it's distinctly embodied by Jesus. Jesus on the cross is love. 
Christian love is putting the needs of others ahead of your own needs. It's sharing in their sufferings. It's sharing in their joys. Christian love is making others a priority, choosing their well-being and taking action. So much of the Christian world has moved into online debate forums. There's a lot of active social media Christian conversations, but Christian love isn't identifying the right thing on Facebook But it's how we live out our lives. Christian love is not only knowing the right thing, but doing the right thing. It's choosing the well-being of others and taking action. This is the type of love we're invited to receive as a member of the Church of Jesus. This is the type of love we're instructed to give as a member of the Church of Jesus. Christians living in a community shaped by the teachings of Jesus is the most faithful response to life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Gathering as the church body is the most faithful thing that we can do in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, the church has a tendency to wander from this calling of of being in relationship based on the love of Christ. The church growth movement has influenced us over the last few decades to believe that a church has to be large to be faithful. It has to be large to be a good church. But I believe a church of 20 people who love each other the way that Jesus loves us is more of a witness to the power of the gospel than a church of 2,000 people who happen to gather in the same building on a Sunday but don't have any relationship or any connection with each other. I think, I think a church of 20 people that are committed and, and self-sacrificially loving one another is more powerfully witnessing to the love of Jesus than a mega church that has all types of bells and whistles going on. The world sees Christ-like love as we share it with one another. And the world will see your Christ-like love and realize that that type of love is something that the world cannot offer them. There's no other substitute, there's no other place to get Christ's love than as a part of the body of Christ. The world will experience that love as they move closer and closer to the body of Christ. And they realize that the healing and the peace that they receive as they draw nearer to the body of Christ, is something that the world cannot offer. There's no substitute for that. And so it's my contention that churches don't need to be better at marketing, we don't need to be more entertaining, and we don't need to be in a competition for the world's attention. But it's my belief that the church must be relentlessly committed to following the command of Jesus. Love each other. Of all the things that we could double down on, all the things that we say, this is our number one priority. It's my belief that the church must be relentlessly committed to following the command of Jesus. Love each other. So church, love each other. Love each other because Jesus said to. Love each other because we have received the love of God. Because as we love each other, God is redeeming the world. Love each other without hesitation. Love each other without thoughts of your own interest. Love each other without keeping score. Love each other without asking if anyone 
truly deserves to be loved or not. Love each other. This is what Jesus told his followers to do. He said, you will experience my love as you gather and love one another. So we love each other, and as we do together, we will experience the love of Christ. We invite the worship team to come and prepare to lead us in one more song. And as they do, I just want to share a blurb from the Nazarene Manual. So those are long-time Nazarenes are familiar with the manual. It's a, uh, our guidebook that kind of teaches us and guides us in how to be church and how to do church. There's a blurb in here that, that gives pastor words to say when somebody comes into membership as part of the Church of the Nazarene. And as the series has been all about belonging and believing because we're loved, I wanted to share uh, just this blurb from the manual. Again, these are the words from a membership uh, service. It says, Dearly beloved, the privileges and blessings that we have in community together in the church of Jesus Christ are sacred and precious. There is in it such hallowed fellowship, care, and counsel as cannot otherwise be known apart from the family of God. There's godly care of pastors with the teachings of the word and inspiration of corporate worship. And there is cooperation and service, accomplishing that which cannot otherwise be done. Desiring to unite with the church in Nazarene, do you commit to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and commit to love your neighbor as yourself? Do you commit to the mission of God as expressed in the doctrine, fellowship, and work of the church? Will you support the teachings of the church and strive with God's help to grow in your understanding and practice? of the same in a way that enhances the witness of the church? Will you endeavor in every way to glorify God by a humble walk, godly conversation, holy service, by devotedly giving your resources and by faithfully participating in the means of grace? Will you follow Jesus all of your days, abstain from all evil, and seek earnestly to perfect holiness of heart and life and fear of the Lord? Now, nobody is coming into membership today, but I wanted you to hear these words as we conclude not only our time today, but as we conclude this series about what it means to belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus not because we've earned it, not because we've cleaned ourselves up enough, but for God so loved the world. It's God's love that initiated this whole thing. It's God's love that has gathered us together. It's God's love that removes and frees us from the captivity of sin. It's God's love that forms this community. And it's God's love that sends us into the world on mission to do, as the words of the manual said, to do in service what cannot otherwise be done alone. Jesus said, love one another. And that is the foundation of everything that we do as the church. We invite you to stand in response and worship.